welcome to the Presto Music Podcast. In 1778, Mozart, on his travels, jealously wrote home to his father from the court of Mannheim and its famous orchestra, exclaiming, Oh, if only we had clarinets. A criticism that certainly can't be levelled at today's show. In fact, on today's show, we'll be taking a look at the history of this relative newcomer on the musical scene, starting with Wolfgang's famous concerto, which helped inspire a raft of composers from the early 19th century, and from the late 19th century, one in particular, Johannes Brahms. From there, we'll take a trip across the Atlantic to see how this instrument was crucial in the early development and popularity of jazz, and how it has continued to inspire composers to the present day. Who better to bring clarity to the world of the clarinet than someone who's remarkably been playing the instrument since the age of four, and is now one of its leading practitioners in both classical and jazz. Welcome to the show, Julian Bliss. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Before we begin our trip through the history of the clarinet, Julian, what's your story with the instrument? So I've been playing for uh, the best part of, well, it doesn't seem possible, about 27 years now. And... uh, (laughs) It's it's interesting because I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people think that having started at such a young age that I must be from a musical family and that it was sort of heavily encouraged. Um, but actually, it's quite the opposite. Most of my family, majority of my family, are engineers. In fact, far cleverer than I am, um, and no, not not really a huge amount of music. When I was four, though, I suddenly expressed an interest in. In music and I don't really know where that came from but I was pretty adamant so I, I kind of nagged my parents every single day to let me play music and finally after a while they they relented and handed me a recorder which lasted a a, a good couple of weeks before I I, I don't know I, I guess I'm maybe I had this idea of the sort of sound I wanted to make because after that, I tried every single instrument under the sun, pretty much. And I knew already that it was going to be a wind or brass instrument. I I almost I almost didn't want to try stringed instruments. Not that there's anything wrong with stringed instruments, of course. Um, some of my favorite musicians actually do, are, are string players. Anyway, I knew already it was wind or brass instrument. And I remember then one day someone brought out a plastic clarinet and entirely plastic as well not not just the body but the keys were plastic too and the pads were made out of rubber actually it to describe it like that doesn't give doesn't give it its credit because this was a phenomenal instrument and without that i don't think i well i I wouldn't have been able to handle a a regular clarinet so it was designed for kids and, and sort of the perfect the perfect way in for me and they showed me this instrument and, and within within minutes, I was hooked. I thought, yes, that is the instrument I want to play. Of course, with no no preconceptions and no, no feelings that maybe this is what I wanted to do forever. It was just what I liked at that time. And that, that's kind of how it started. And I never, I've never looked back, um, never considered other instruments. Uh, I learned the piano and I really, really love playing the piano or... I should say, loved playing the piano. I don't really have time anymore. I wish I did, um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the early the early years there for you. Well, could you give me a brief background to the early years of the clarinet and how it was derived from an earlier instrument called the chalumeau in the early 18th century? It is quite a, an interesting history, and if you keep tracing it back, you you find even more information the, the further you go, and. It's a little bit vague in some ways because a, a, a tube with a single reed on it or a reed in some way seemed to be fairly prevalent in, in very early days. I mean, we're talking sort of third century here. Um, and one of the, the first instances of, of a single reed instrument was uh, the Egyptians uh, had an instrument called the Mehmet. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. There was one also that was two uh, tubes that were slightly different lengths that created a dissonance. So they had two individual single reeds rather than one double reeded instrument. And so I think that's where people start to think the origins of the clarinet come about. Um, you mentioned the Chalamot, um, which is sort of now we still have the Chalamot register, we call it on the instrument. And this was kind of the first 
first real, the, the closest thing we can see to, to, a, to a modern day clarinet. But it wasn't until around 1700. And again, this, the dates are somewhat vague and who actually invented it. Some people dispute. Uh, um, but we had a gentleman uh, with the last name Denner. Uh, who in 1700, around 1700, added a couple of keys to a Chalamot and as such increased the range by something like two octaves, which is significant. So all of a sudden we have this this one, the Chalamot instrument, which was kind of limited, well, very limited, to now having this instrument, which became the clarinet, with this vastly uh, improved range. And it's a bit like adding gears to a bike, isn't it? It is. And interestingly, as, as we'll talk more, people just started adding more, more keys, more things. And now, I mean, if you look back then, some of the most beautiful instruments, some of them made, um, and, and people will notice the different kinds of wood, especially compared to today. Back then, they used a lot of boxwood. I think even pear as well, which sounds quite nice. Um, but yeah, the date is somewhat disputed. There is, I think there's only one Denner clarinet in existence. Um, and I think even that, the provenance of that's even a bit disputed as well. But generally, we we attribute the invention of the clarinet to to Denner. Um, it was also known as like the mock trumpet as well. Uh, so it had that had that kind of sound. I take that as a compliment personally. <laughs> well, the clarinet was fortunate in that it hit the ground running when it came to concertos. The Mozart concerto was the first major concerto written for it, and many people would still say it's the greatest. Yet, discussion around this piece often mentions the Bassett clarinet. What's the difference between a Bassett clarinet and a regular one? And can you demonstrate with some musical examples? The Bassett clarinet was somewhat of a... Well, it, it shows the, the evolution of the instrument and, and the fact people were trying to, to do new things. For example, put new keys on, make the instrument uh, longer, which then increases the range. And we can see that with others, which we'll talk about later, the A clarinet this is the b flat clarinet which became the most popular bass clarinet bassett clarinet was an interesting one and we we don't have the instrument anymore but it was stadler was was mozart's friend and who he wrote the wrote the concerto for and he had this new fangled clarinet he said hey hey check this out look i can i can play these extra notes and it's it's not a huge increase in range it's only another four notes four or so notes on the bottom of an a clarinet but it really makes a difference the the two main pieces written for the bassett clarinet are the mozart concerto and the quintet after that there wasn't not much and there's a, you know there's a couple of modern pieces written for the instrument but predominantly it's mozart and i think for a lot of people if they're just playing two pieces on one clarinet, it's somewhat extravagant then to have <laughs> a, an instrument just for that. But I was, I was adamant that I was only going to learn the concerto on the Bassett clarinet. First of all, not just having those low notes uh, makes a difference to the sound. The sound of the whole instrument is different. I think with the extra mass, and, and when you see it, it does look considerably bigger and uh, longer with more keys so it's weightier it's a bit of a bit of an animal to play and to i wouldn't say control but it feels like it at times and it, it creates this entirely different sound in my opinion a much darker sound depending who's playing it on, on what day it is i guess but generally speaking a much darker sound and those low notes there's a lot of then unisons between the lower parts of the orchestra and what I love is is when I play this piece, you're right sometimes in amongst there with the cellos and the basses. And it's like all of a sudden it kind of makes even more sense. So I love I love playing it on the basset. I, I don't think I've ever played the concerto on the regular A clarinet. And to me, it's it's the only way I can I can hear the piece. So I've picked out a couple of examples here for us to listen to some nice running passages uh, some of the some of the more difficult passages, but actually, interestingly enough, I will mention before we hear this, you you said that people say Mozart is the greatest concerto, and it is. I mean, it's certainly the most popular. A lot of people say it's also one of the most difficult. And when we listen to it, some people think, well, it's it's not as difficult as say some modern concerto. So why is it one of the most difficult? And I think 
because it's not so technically virtuosic yes there are difficult passages but it's a lot of scale uh, passages rather than being extended techniques and i mean of course not in mozart but you don't have these things to hide behind you are very exposed to the fundamentals of playing the instrument which is to make a nice sound nice legato hopefully we always make a nice sound and in the running passages you have to have utmost precision um, in these examples, you can you can really, really hear that. I mean, there is no one better, in my opinion, than Sabina Meyer. And so uh, she's going to demonstrate this incredibly well for us, the Bassett Clarinet. <laughs> That was a sample from the first movement. Let's sample the finale, both performed by Sabina Meyer, the Berliner Philharmonica, conducted by Claudio Abado on Warner. After the classical period, the clarinet was very popular with the early Romantic composers like Weber, Spohr and Krommer. Why was that? I think, as I mentioned before, in this whole time period was when the innovation of the instrument really happened. And it started to, to grow in, in popularity. I mean, if we, if we go back even, even further, it's sort of 1716 that we started to notice clarinets in the orchestra. And from that its popularity started to grow. People thought, hang on, this, yeah, this instrument, this sounds pretty good. Um, and, <laughs> but I think it was the advancements in the instrument that really made the difference here. If you look at images of, of some of those older instruments with, with a couple of keys, then uh, as it went on, the addition of more keys, the extended range, is the, it was the register key in the, in the original one that um, increased the range. And funny enough, it's very different than, I'm, I'm sorry, I realise I'm on a tangent here, very different to the saxophone that also has a register key. Because on the clarinet, the register key makes it go up by a twelfth, not an octave. The saxophone is an octave. So, yeah, by going up a, a whole twelfth, it's, it really changes the range of the instrument. But I think you can really notice that in some of those later concertos. You know, we're talking Stamitz, Weber, um, Spohr especially. That stuff is really virtuosic that's very athletic pieces but Weber I mean his second clarinet concerto you have the first couple of notes that the clarinet plays almost at the the extremities of the range of the instrument and I think it was this this newfound uh, range and newfound sound that people were so interested in in exploiting even more and I think also through that time the of course the the level of of the players was increasing as well. They were getting to grips with these innovations and some incredible players. I mean, if we listen to listen to like Weber clarinet concertos, 
they're they're difficult by today's standards with modern <laughs> instruments. So I can't even imagine how how Behrman, for example, did it. I mean, I, I imagine and I know we these days we've ramped up the tempos quite a bit uh, and we have to sometimes be very mindful and, and not not go too fast. I think we sometimes lose some of the some of that character. But I think it was it was that those newfound innovations and and newfound sort of dexterity that then these composers really wanted to exploit that. This the Cromer as well, which we're going to play a little excerpt of, um, which shows those new resources. And it's really nice to have this double concerto where the instruments can play off each other and be in different ranges on the instrument. The last movement that we're going to hear now is a real demonstration of that that newfound kind of dexterity and, and virtuosic playing. Um, and yeah, lots of running passages here, which I remember recording this actually um, with Sabina and it was one of the best experiences of my life to record it alongside who, someone who I consider the, the, the best soloist around. And uh, I'll explain why later in my, in my opinion, but was was just a, a really joyful experience and it pushed me, pushed me to play my absolute best. Well, let's hear you at your absolute best alongside Sabina Meyer with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields conducted by Sir Neville Mariner on Warner. So, as you said, uh, you've been fortunate to study and record with Sabina Meyer. What makes her such a great player? First of all, I mean, there's so many things. I could talk about her and her playing and my time studying with her for hours. It was, a lot of people would say or have said in things, a life-changing experience. And I, I would, I, I don't mean that lightly in any way. I, I truly believe, had I not studied with her, that my career... I don't know if I would have a career, to be honest, and certainly wouldn't look anything anything like it or have the potential to be what I want it to be, shall we say. First of all, she's, she's the most lovely person. She has achieved such incredible things in life, but it's just, it's just a normal person, normal mum with kids. Um, but once you put a clarinet in her hands, <laughs> oh yeah, then she means business. And it was the same in, in Lessons. She was tough. She was a very tough teacher, but in all the best ways. Her focus when I was studying with her, when I started, was technique. And I think it's one of those, I mean, for all musicians, technique is, is one that we is incredibly important and one that maybe when you're young, you, you somewhat, you focus on the music, shall we say. But she taught me that with such a, a good grounding in technique, your playing then can be limitless. And what I loved and what I always loved about her playing, even when I was a kid, and I remember hearing her play Mozart. I think it was Mozart at, at the proms, Royal Albert Hall. And I must have been about six or seven. It was just how easy she made everything sound. There were some of the most difficult pieces were just, it was just there and just beautiful. And I always thought, how? How do, you, how do I do this? <laughs> I, hang on, I want to figure this out. And I think what it was is with such such an incredible knowledge and and proficiency doesn't even come close in technique when she performs and this is in my opinion when she performs she's not thinking about what the hands are doing what the technical aspects of it are she's just thinking about making music and making uh, what what she's playing sound beautiful and i think that really comes through yeah, I I love as you can probably tell I I, I love studying with her I was there for a good amount of years and 
yeah, even now when I hear her playing, I think, man, one day, one day I'll get close. <laughs> well, if Sabina Meyer was the inspiration for Julian Bliss and Anton Stadler was the great clarinet player who inspired Mozart, another virtuoso on the instrument, Richard Mulfelt, would so inspire Johannes Brahms that he came out of retirement to produce four latent masterpieces for the instrument, the quintet, the trio and the two sonatas. Late Brahms is perhaps defined by both the clarinet and the epithet autumnal. What makes the clarinet so suited to late Brahms's style? It's funny, a lot of people use that autumnal description for late Brahms, and I think there are elements of it. I remember having a, a conversation with uh, James Bailey about it, um, who is incredibly, I mean, first of all, uh, uh, awesome doesn't come close. He's, he's an incredible musician, awesome musician. And it was a real pleasure to record Brahms with him. He has such a knowledge in that, in the vocal world. And I think that fits with wind players very well. And so when we worked together, it just felt incredibly natural. Anyway, I think it was partly at the end of his life. And and also at times it seemed like looking back and his composing was in a slightly different way at least seemed in a different different way. You know, there's a lot of things in, in the clarinet pieces where he'll repeat the same theme from the beginning at the end of the at the end of the piece and people think that's sort of looking back at his life. And you know, when he was dealing with certain things at that at those points in his, his life, of course it's going to affect your, your composition. But I I'm incred I think every clarinet player is incredibly happy that he did come out of retirement. And it's interesting to look. You, you mentioned Mozart, Stadler, and you know, Weber, and Behrman, and you know, all of these great pieces were as a result of of friends and of relationships. I believe Brahms had heard Mufelt play, I think, some Weber actually, and loved it and thought, "How this is this guy? This guy's pretty good actually." <laughs> and it was it was captivated, and, and then. Love the sound. I think that's what it was. Love the sound that Mufelt managed to get from his instrument. And of course, without uh, without the player, the instrument makes no sound at all. But I do think that, that some of that was, again, the instrument that he was playing and, and how it had advanced over the years and, and into what he was playing at that time. And you can really hear that in all of his pieces. The sonatas, the trio and the quintet at times most of the time are not particularly virtuosic there's not you know screaming around on the instrument if you listen to Weber as comparison no it's much more singing um sweet kind of of playing which is incredibly difficult actually um to get that it's more vocal music I think it's the most amazing music to play and there's so much so many intricacies within it I find sometimes the difficulty with Brahms though is is not musically highlighting everything. You know, if you if you take time and and highlight every single point, it's like it overdoes it. Sometimes the beauty is just play it, just try and make a nice sound and let the music be what it needs to be. Um, but the two sonatas are, are quite different too. I find that the F minor is a lot darker, a lot more at times kind of angry, somber, um, anguished. And the E flat, I mean, even in terms of the, the key signatures, the, even the E flat then has a completely different different feel. Um, but I, I love them both. Well, let's hear, let's hear your clarinet do the talking. This is the sample of the Brahms' second clarinet sonata in E flat performed by Julian Bliss and James Bailey on Signum on a new recording that's going to come out, coming out in May.
There's a wonderful melodic quality to these performances. Uh, many instrumentalists like to claim that their instrument is the one that is closest to the human voice. How strong is the clarinet's claim? Well, I'm, I am a little bit biased. Um, <laughs> it is interesting, but I, I do feel that there are elements of the clarinet that, that make it very close. I mean, first of all, we're, we're also using our breath. And in terms of how we start notes and start phrases, you know, with, with air, but also then using, and I, I think any wind instrument really, wind or brass instrument can, can lay claim to, to being close to the to human voice because we're using the same, same things. I mean, even, even in string instruments, whilst they're not using, I mean, it, I'm talking myself out of this now, aren't I? <laughs> Terrible. Um, I think when it comes to musicality, the actual musicality, then it doesn't, that doesn't make a difference what instrument you're playing. But in terms of the, the breath and, and using that to create the sound, yes, then we are, we are quite close. I guess also the, the versatility, what I mean by that is how we can create so many different sounds on, on the one instrument also then makes it close to the, to the human voice. And it's interesting, I wanted to to explore that. And that's why on, on this particular album, I also arranged some some Brahms songs, partly because that was then the next piece that he wrote. And it's really interesting to hear similarities. There's little phrases that I remember when we were rehearsing it, I, I could hear in the sonatas. And I thought, yeah, that's that's really, really cool. But yeah, that's why I wanted to put that on there. Because first of all, it fit very well. And also because it's vocal music and I, I thought it, it worked well for the clarinet too. And I don't think it'd been done on the clarinet either. That was the other reason. World first. <laughs> well, a key attribute of the clarinet is its extraordinary flexibility. It's at home as a solo instrument, in the orchestra, in wind bands. And perhaps nothing could demonstrate this more as we head from the distinctly unjazzy world of late 19th century Vienna to America in the roaring 20s. Julian, there were some great clarinet players in the early days of jazz, like Sidney Bechet and Edmund Hall, and the clarinet was crucial in the development of this nascent art form. Who are some of your favourite clarinet players from the early days of jazz? I mean, that list is is kind of endless. You mentioned mentioned there Sidney Bechet, uh, Jimmy Noon, Johnny Dodds, Leon Ropolo, Alphonse Picard. I mean, it's, there's there's a great list, and it's great to hear the differences as as well in in their playing and and approach. It's incredible when you start looking at the at that early jazz and how, in my opinion, the it, it helped the clarinet and the clarinet helped helped that as well. You know, they started then to bring the instrument further afield in into that world. If we look then a little bit later on with some of the the real greats, and I don't mean that in terms of playing greats because those guys were, but in terms of marketing. Actually, that does them discredit too. You know, I think you know what I mean. Um, the most famous names in jazz clarinet. Let's go with that. You know, the thing like Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw. Um, that was when the clarinet was like at the forefront of bands. You know, in, in that kind of the 30s swing era, the clarinet was front and centre. And I think that really helped to get a whole new world interested in in the instrument and it was incredible to hear the kind of things that they could do with the clarinet everyone knows benny goodman benny goodman is is known as the you say jazz clarinet people think of benny goodman but that is you can't take anything away from any of the others um those early guys especially artie shaw as well some people argue was an even better clarinetist than than goodman i say it was just different but if once you start really paying attention to the notes they were playing, do you realize these guys were phenomenal musicians? Not only did they help bring the clarinet to a new audience, but also that what was the American pop music then to a whole new world. And without that, I, I, I don't know. I haven't I don't know what the clarinet world would look like, but it would certainly would be would be vastly different. Perhaps people had to take jazz seriously because if an instrument that so inspired Brahms and Mozart was being played by these great jazz musicians, well, then it had, you had to take it seriously as an art form. Yeah, yeah. Well, if it was good enough for Brahms, then, you know. <laughs> then why not? Let's, let's give it a go. It was, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting one. I think it was partly the sound as well of the, of the instrument that, that fit really well with that, with that early, early jazz sound. And the flexibility, I mean, you listen to the sounds that 
that they managed to get some really wide sound, a lot of vibrato. You know, listen to some of that Sydney Bechet playing, and it's it's great. I love it. It's full of emotion, full of full of feeling, and it's fun to sometimes try and recreate some of that a little bit. I think it is anyway. And you've uh, selected a piece by Jimmy Noon for us to sample. I have. Um, I mean, Jimmy Noon was a great clarinetist, and I love this this recording. You can really hear his technique on show here. He's uh, just. It's essentially, it seems like he's just showing off, like, hey, look what I can do. Um, but it's impeccable. It's so, so well articulated for a start, but so precise. And yeah, it, it just takes me back to that, to that kind of time and, and imagine what they, were, what they were trying to create in that, in that era. And then, yeah, I love listening to this early jazz and especially some Jimmy Noon. I Know That You Know by Jimmy Noon. You've recently released a great jazz album with the Julian Bliss Septet. How hard was the transition from the classical world to the jazz one? Is the clarinet a great crossover instrument? Well, well I think so. <laughs> and with that, yeah, crossover is one of those, yeah, makes everyone here. No, no, it's not that bad. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how sometimes we, we tend to naturally, I think, pigeonhole clarinets or, or instruments into various genres or or even genres themselves and there's a great there's a great amount of music that sits between both you know is there, if right, let's look at Gershwin at times was he composing classical music or was it jazz or does it really matter it was just <laughs> it was just good music but for me the whole the whole jazz world started somewhat because of Copland's clarinet concerto which is a great example of that sort of crossing crossover. There we go. We use it, use it again. The crossover between the genres. At times, you're you are playing classical music, and then at times you have to take on some of those jazz um, techniques and ways of playing. And we were planning a recording uh, at, uh, many years ago. I think it was over ten years ago now. And the idea to have the idea was to have some other pieces some jazz tunes by Benny Goodman arranged for clarinet and orchestra. And so I went away and diligently started listening to a lot of Benny Goodman, but in a different way. I'd always heard jazz clarinet, but it seemed so far away from what I was doing as a kid that I never I never imagined. It, I, I just didn't put myself in, in that world until then. And I started thinking... Yeah, we could do we could do some of these tunes. That would be quite fun. Bit of a chat. Well, I say a bit of a challenge. That's an understatement. <laughs> Huge challenge. But then I, I I thought, well, it would be lovely to have a rhythm section with the orchestra. And oh, well, then we could do this. You see where I'm going. And before you know it, uh, I'd ended up kind of creating my own my own band. And I just jumped in at the deep end and just played. And I created put together a band of some incredible musicians and i am forever indebted to them for first of all everything that they bring to to the band and the project but for everything that they've taught me i find the best way to learn is is by doing and even just by watching them i mean every time we do a concert my my jaws on the floor when they're solo i'm like how how do you do this i want i want to do that and i think it was that challenge that really pushed me and to me it's not a a a difficult transition to me, the only difference between jazz and classical is that in jazz, you don't have pre-prescribed notes to play all the time. But even in classical, you're still improvising. You're still improvising a lot of the the, the phrasing, the, the articulation, the shaping of notes 
depending on how you're feeling, who you're playing with, you know, where you are. And so to me, this, there's more similarities than there are differences. And I've had times where I'll do a, a classical concert. I think once a Weber, Weber concerto, um, I think it was a little tour with the Halle, which was so much fun. And then straight afterwards, a concert with the band. And yeah, I, I didn't have to, to reset or change instrument or just off we go. And I, th I think it works. <laughs> I hope so anyway. <laughs> Great. Well, we can sample a bit of it now. So this is Gershwin's Embraceable You. from Julian Bliss's jazz album on Signum. Now, undoubtedly, the most famous clarinet player of the 20th century was Benny Goodman, the king of swing. Apart from moving it side to side quickly, how do you make a clarinet swing? <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's the same as any other instrument. It's through, it, it's that feel. You know, when you hear a band and it's, it's swinging, you can't always put your finger on exactly why. It just is and it just works and just has that, just gets you. And I think it's it's the same as, as, like I say, same as any other instrument and through the studying and through experience. I don't think that feel is something you can practice so much at home on your own. Yeah, you can do certain work with a with a metronome. You know, you, if you work with a metronome, you have to make it like the metronome is grooving as well when you play. And that's kind of a good way to get, get the feel. And how you also feel it's subdivision. But these are all things that I, I would do in, in classical music. You know, in certain passages you subdivide to give a different uh, feeling or different shape to a phrase. But there is no substitute for just playing and experiencing it with other musicians. And it, it's something that just comes with, with the years. Um, and you, you have to almost kind of, you have to relax. Even when you're thinking, I don't know, I, it's interesting to, to put to people, what do you think about? when you're improvising and for me sometimes you think i i don't i don't know actually I, I i don't know if if there's always kind of conscious thought you're obviously listening intently to what's going on and what everyone else is playing and, and the 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 voicings that they're using but it's kind of then becomes a i wouldn't say subconscious but it's like your imagination sort of takes over so yeah the the only way really is is by doing and so i would encourage everybody I think everybody should have a knowledge in, in jazz or extended music theory. That's actually, I'm going to go on a little rant for a second. I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to. But that's what frustrates me between jazz and classical. Is It's like when we, when we learn music, we tend to learn classical music theory. And then if, if you want to learn jazz, oh, here you go. Here's an extra, here's some more music theory to learn. So, but hang on, is that is that not... Music theory, is that not useful for classical music to learn about harmony and, and different chord progressions? Surely knowing that stuff makes you a better musician and you can play any type of music with with more feeling because you understand the harmony more. So I've always thought, let's just learn music. And then it doesn't matter what you play. It doesn't matter if you never play a note of jazz in your life, if you understand chords and you know half diminished chords and progressions. I think it makes you a better musician. Anyway, sorry, rant over. I'll, I'll move yeah. on now. <laughs> I forgot what your question was as well. No, apologies for that. That's all right. Well, the clarinet is a great instrument to bridge that world, isn't it? You know, one thinks of the most famous uh, piece of classical music inspired by jazz, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Of course, how does that begin? With a lovely glissando. <laughs> Everybody, everyone always asks that. Hey, can you play the beginning of Rhapsody in Blue? <laughs> is that your party piece? Uh, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, let's sample Sing 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 from Benny Goodman at the famous concert in Carnegie Hall on January 16th, 1938. A real landmark moment. Much like sex, I think every generation likes to think they invented musical fandom. I read a lovely story once a few days ago of uh, a grandson who sheepishly admitted to his grandmother that he snuck out of school to see the Stones, only for his grandmother to reply, oh, I snuck out of school to see Benny Goodman when I was 14 in 1938. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that concert was um, a, a huge moment, actually, in music. I mean, I remember lead, reading the stories leading up to that. Goodman was, was reluctant. He was reluctant to do that concert. He... And I think it was his publicist in the end that, that kind of convinced him, said, hey, look, this might be a good idea. Yeah. I mean, that's a prime example, taking that, what was American popular music, into the home of classical music. And unsurprisingly, it, it went down like a storm. And I seem to remember reading as well, they would challenge each other to make Sing 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 as long as they could. The solos would just get longer and longer and longer and longer. It, it wasn't originally supposed to be a huge, well, this 13 minute, I think this this version was, but... Yeah, certainly a, a a pinnacle, a high high point in in the clarinet in jazz, um, for the clarinet in jazz, I mean, and uh, yeah, great, a fantastic concert. If only I would, I would love to have been there. Loved it. But in jazz, the clarinet was eventually usurped by the saxophone. Why do you think that was? I've been thinking about this a lot, and I've been asked this question before. I wonder if it was a, a sound thing. You know, with the emergence of, of different types of jazz, bebop, I th uh, for example, and then into even going on from there, I think the sound of the, the saxophone maybe, maybe suited that type more. But also jazz changed in a way. And saxophone fundamentally is a louder instrument than the clarinet. And so I think when, the, when jazz changed in that way, that it just suited the saxophone a little bit more. I sometimes, as you get in trouble sometimes for saying this, I do wonder whether the seeming complexity of the clarinet maybe had something to play play a part. I'm not ins insinuating for one second <laughs> that the saxophone is an easier instrument to play. Um, but fundamentally, there are some things, you know, like with the, the register key, you have a set of fingerings, press register key, it's the same again. Clarinet, a 12, so everything ends up stacking up differently. So I think... I think it was a combination of things, really. But, you know, there were still clarinetists even through then that were doing fantastic things on the clarinet. And even these days, there are some incredible clarinetists out there. You know, um, Pequito Di Rivera, for example. Um, Annette Cohen is another one that I, I just love her, love her playing. And these days, I think the clarinet has seen and is seeing a bit of a resurgence as, as well in jazz. But, uh, yeah, I think it was a combination of things, but fundamentally just the, the sound of the instrument. They also perhaps wanted an instrument that, did, that didn't actually have a classical pedigree as they wanted to head out for on, things on their own. Yeah. Do you play the saxophone yourself? I, I do not, no. Um, I mean, I, I can get a note out of it. <laughs> well, I can play an octave because the octave, one octave is the same, but after that, I'm, I'm lost. I, I tr naturally revert back to clarinet fingerings. It was something, at one time, I remember a few people suggesting I should learn the saxophone but i i don't know why i always just kind of stuck stuck with the clarinet i mean i'm still still trying to learn how to play the clarinet to be honest with <laughs> oh, you of course um, i mean yeah yeah learn one first before you try another one hey? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know for me at this stage i i think I, I don't think i will learn the saxophone i think this for the sort of music i want to play and these days with the with the open-mindedness actually of people these days i think you you can Play, you can play anything you want on the clarinet. Now with electronics as well, you can create any any sound you could ever imagine from one instrument. 
But um, who knows? Who knows? Maybe in the future. I think actually what I would go back to is piano. If I if I had time to practice any other instrument, it would be the piano. Well, we've nearly brought up to the present day. Can you pick some of your favourite compositions for the clarinet from the second half of the 20th century through to today? I think one of my favourites and one of my absolute favourites to perform is the Lindbergh Clarinet Concerto. I remember the first time I heard it and I thought, what? <laughs> what? Huh? How? How? How are we supposed to do this? How do we play this? And I remember being sent the music not not long before my first performance and I think it was one of those it's one of those where there's instructions on how to play it before you even see a single note you know this is what this part means you need, you know it's going to be a difficult piece when you see that but it was uh, it's what 27 minutes or so of just relentless playing and the incredible extremities of the instrument notes that you didn't even know some people might not even be able to hear the notes up there <laughs> Only dogs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Effects, multiphonics, um, which is playing more than one note at the same time, kind of growling into the instrument, overblowing, glissandos. There is everything in this piece. And interestingly enough, the scoring is somewhat different as well. It's for it's full orchestra. There's even clarinets within the orchestra. So you you have the added challenge of well, being heard for a start when you're you you have a full symphony orchestra and then there's you at the front on your own <laughs> and it gives me such an adrenaline rush to perform because for that 27 minutes you put everything into it and there's a point towards the end of the piece where you're holding a high c which used to be like the highest note on the clarinet people are like, don't just don't go above a high c that's that's where you stop now we're we're, we're above that but you're holding a high C for what feels like eternity and every fiber of your being is saying I'm no I'm done this is I can't do this I can't hold this note anymore you know you're worn out sweat dripping down your face I'm painting a good picture here aren't I and it's it's the most amazing feeling I love it and it's like afterwards someone needs to come and put, collect you from stage pick you up you know put you in a wheelbarrow and wheel you off you're you know I love it. I love every single moment of it. It's such a such a rush and a pleasure to play as well. So, yeah, that that has to be. I mean, that's that's my favourite. And every time I get a chance to play it, I will always always do it. And I hope to be able to record it at some point in the future as well. You haven't yet done so, but Carrie Kuku has with the Finnish Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Zachary Oromo on on Dean. This concerto really fuses together so many aspects of modern clarinet playing, from the extended techniques to the world of jazz, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, you have a. You mentioned before Rhapsody in Blue with that glissando, and in this piece you have those glissandos, you have those extended techniques. So if you if you look at that, then yeah, there's there's a lot of similarities, which is great. I mean, yeah, now listening to it, I just want to play it again. I just want to get out there and do it again. <laughs> Well, as well as performing, you've also done some transcriptions, in particular a transcription of the Prokofiev Flute Sonata. How hard was it to transcribe, and what's involved in the process of transcription? So, yeah, I, I selected this piece. It's a little bit of a left-field choice, I, I feel, but I wanted to put it in because it, it kind of shows a little bit of progression in, in terms of what people are doing these days. You know, I think we are, musicians are taking, I say borrowing, politely borrowing, music from other instruments and sometimes people feel very strongly about it i mean let's not get into the whole brahms and clarinet viola thing i mean that's that's a whole anyway <laughs> I've, i just i just brought it up didn't i but um i think it's it's important for us to increase the repertoire the clarinet repertoire 
if you look at it compared to something like the the violin or piano, is smaller. And in, certainly in terms of the the famous pieces of music, yeah, there's, there's there's not so many. And so I'm always looking for new pieces of music or pieces that I've enjoyed that I I think might work for the instrument. And I remember I was putting together um, a program and I I heard a recording. I can't remember who it was now, but I heard a recording of the Prokofiev flute sonata, and I thought this might this might work. I mean, it's one of those cautious moments, <laughs> thinking this is really difficult, but let's give it a go. And I, I remember I did the arrangement myself, and it, it was fairly fairly straightforward to do that transcription. Most of the time, just adjusting things to sit in in better registers on the instrument but i did try and keep things in a, in the original register as much as i could and then i i committed to playing it in a concert i thought let's do it i, I never do anything by house and then i made the arrangement and i started playing it and i thought what have i done to myself why did i make it so why did i do this it's so difficult <laughs> but also there's nowhere to breathe you play the the all four <laughs> all four movements and there's nowhere to stop but again, I mean, I love the challenge and it is a is a rush playing it. And certainly there's some movements that are just the really tricky. The, the second movement in particular to get the articulation nice and crisp. And there's a lot of talking about range of the instrument that really takes it up into the, the stratosphere. I enjoy it. I really enjoy doing that. And I think we should be open minded to trying different things, trying uh, some transcriptions and arrangements on different instruments. Some will work. And some some will not. And I think it's it's through through trying those and through performing those that we can get that. But I think the Prokofiev does work quite well. But then again, I would say that, wouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's sample the second movement formed by, of course, Julian Bliss with Bradley Moore at piano on Signum. I'm going to irritate the flautist listening, who I know are very defensive of this sonata and the fact that it's also known as the second violin sonata yep. by saying I was really impressed by how well this sonata does actually fit the clarinet. <laughs> it does. It does. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been one that I, I I haven't performed it for a while. But then again, I think performances in general haven't happened for a while, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we get back to that soon. Would you agree that the clarinet is perhaps unmatched, certainly in terms of wind instruments, in the variety of its repertoire and its flexibility? Yes, but as a clarinetist, <laughs> I think I am I, I am biased in that in that respect. If we look at the repertoire or or the instrument as a whole, and it's the the amount of fantastic music in the classical world that that we have for us and. You know, looking at the the Mozart, the the Weber's, the Brahms. I mean, those Brahms are just they're, they're my favourites. So, some of the most beautiful chamber music, and then yeah, into chamber music, some of the 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 quintets, the quartets, the quintets, you know, Beethoven septet, the Schubert octet. I, I mean, the end, the list is endless. If we then take into account the massive impact that the clarinet and jazz had on each other, I think. Yeah, it's an incredibly special instrument, and without it, I, I don't. I don't think we would. Well, things would look very different, uh, of course. <laughs> you state, wouldn't have a job for a start. Oh, I know. <laughs> state the obvious, but I. I do feel that in some ways, yes, it is. It is unmatched. I don't think there's another instrument that has, especially if we talk about crossing those those genres, the crossover between genres. <laughs> um, I think the clarinet is, yeah, is, is certainly unmatched in that regard. Fantastic. Well, as well as a new Brahms disc that's coming out in May, what other projects have you got coming up? So there's an, another release. I know there's a lot 
it's all from me this year apologies everyone <laughs> yeah first half of this year i think there's three there's three releases but Goodness. the next one that's coming out in june um all stems from well being being in lockdown being stuck at home which was a very new and weird concept for me i think this is the longest period i've ever been at home for the last at least 15 years you know a lot of musicians took a bit of a break they did some other they did some different things baking and gardening and which i did for a while and then i thought okay what what can i do there has to be a way that i can create music and, and create things at home and so i started to look at multi-tracking projects and i'd done one before i did a steve reich um new york counterpoint which was a huge amount of fun and uh, a fantastic work and i started to think about what else i could do as a multi-track project over the years being involved and, and being in the u.s quite a lot seeing the american band world which is huge the amount of musicians amount of people in school players and the amount of repertoire is 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 incredible and some really really fantastic works so having been involved in that and got to know the repertoire i found there was these three pieces that i thought might work well uh arranged for multiple clarinets and percussion and i asked the incredible joby burgess to to record his percussion parts to record the percussion parts and so i picked three pieces that i don't know especially in america if if you were in band or in choir you would be familiar with these composers for sure or will have played one if not all of these pieces so i've kind of gone for very well-known pieces in that world and reimagined them for clarinets so one of them um, is a piece called Asphalt Cocktail by John Mackey, which, as the name might suggest, is fast moving. Uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of percussion. Um, October by Eric Whittaker, which is completely different feel. Very um, long lines, very singing with a beautiful harmony. And then a piece called Blue Shades by Frank Tichelli, which is very influenced by by jazz. And it was, sorry, I'm giving you a long answer to your short question here, but it was so much fun to set up a little recording studio, if you can call it that, at home. Get to grips with recording myself, editing all all of the parts, what are 30 something at times clarinet parts. I think any more than one clarinet is too many. <laughs> but, <laughs> but here we are. I don't know. Um, at times there's you know, 30 parts and then upwards of seven percussion parts. And learning all of that was, I, I loved it. I really did. And then to hear hear the result and hear it all come together, you think, wow, that's that's it's kind of cool actually. I, I really, yeah. Now listening back to it, it's it reminds me of those those lockdown days, those early lockdown days. Which, if there's something positive to come out of it, it was that because I just wouldn't have had the time to do it. So yeah, that comes out in June, and I I really hope that you know if over here maybe some people aren't so familiar with that repertoire that maybe it will inspire them to check out some more of that American banner because there's some really fantastic stuff. And can we have a sneak peek? Why not? Why not? I'll give you a little <laughs> sneak peek of um, Asphalt Cocktail by John Mackey and a section where there's a lot of percussion going on. And there's even a point where he asks for a metal bin to be filled with pieces <laughs> of metal and then slammed on the ground as hard as you possibly can. Um, and you just happen to have those instruments around oh, at the house. Oh, of course. <laughs> no, that was that was thanks to the incredible Joby Burgess. He, yeah, he's he's playing on this, and he's such a fantastic musician. It was a pleasure to work with him. So, yeah, here's a little sample, a, a very early sneak peek. I hope I'm allowed to do this, but here we go anyway. Here's a sneak peek of Asphalt Cocktail. <laughs>
it's clear to me why you're such a successful clarinet player, Julian, because you are just as flexible as the instrument itself. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Julian, for taking us through a trip through clarinet history. I also have to thank my producer, Matt Groom, and I have to thank you for listening. <laughs>